everybody. Uh, my name is Pastor Ben. Um, as uh, Pastor Michael was alluding to, um, I'm here with my wife and the two kids. The one making the most noise is mine. Um, so th- thanks for being patient with us. And um, we are, uh, it's always an honor to be able to be up here and to worship with you guys. This, is, uh, this church family is just uh, super meaningful. To, to me and, and my wife and our journey in ministry, this was one of the first places I ever got a chance to preach. And so whenever I ever get a chance to come back here, it kind of feels like a homecoming. And it's always good to see what the Lord is doing in your midst. And so we're going to be in 1 Samuel. Uh, I'm supposed to also say that we're just dismissing kids to Kid Nation. That's why Michael was looking at me. He was waiting. And he said, you know how this works. This has been this way for years. You should know this by now. But, I, but the slide said it, so there you go. Kid Nation is dismissed. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 26 this morning. And, uh, and looking at this series that we've been, or this, this story that has been unfolding over the, the course of the summer. How many of you guys have been enjoying this, this series? Have you, guys been, have you guys enjoyed this time? This is an unusual series. As, I, um, as we have been preparing together, Pastor Michael and Pastor Orrin and myself, we have regular conversations about what we're reading through and studying, and we're able to help each other out. Well, mostly Michael helps us out because he is the resident scholar in our group. And... Um, and what's been fun or interesting is, you know, if you do a sermon series on Romans or do a sermon series on Matthew, there's tons of resources and tons of people's, other people who have done the work, and you can go and sort of compare what they've done and say, what's the Lord leading me to teach out of this text? But it's really difficult to find sermons from 1 Samuel chapter 20 and on. And that's because, I think as we talked about throughout this series, this is a hard section to understand, Right? It's not hard to understand from a plot perspective. It's a simple story of David being the king, the anointed king, but also not being the ruling king, and that Saul is the, the ruling king, but he's no longer the anointed king, and the, and the tension and really the warfare that comes out of that. And it's really an interpersonal conflict. So the plot is not complicated. What is complicated is the question, so what? Right? How does this apply to my life in any way? How does this help me if, if, what we, if what the New Testament says is true and that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable, meaning it's actually useful, it's not just, you know, pretty words on a page, then what is the profitability for this section in our, in our lives? That's been the challenge of this series together. We read this morning already um, a section from something that Paul wrote to the Romans. And... Um, I want to focus in on the end of that section that, we, that Ryan already read for us in our call to worship. Um, it says, look at verse 19. It says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing... You will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I've always loved that phrase, that image, right? Heaping burning coals on someone's head. And it's this sort of irony, right? He says, if you want to take, re- you want to take revenge on your enemies, you really want to get them, Love them. 
There's nothing that's going to get under their skin more than that. Right? If, if your enemy is thirsty, uh, give him something to drink. That'll really get under their skin. And it's this, it's this funny, like, uh, spiritual revenge. But of course, we know that that's, that's more easier said than done. That's an easy verse to read. It's a hard verse to practice, right? Easy verse to read, hard verse to practice. What I was thinking about, even as Ryan was, was reading this this morning, is that it starts with, bless those who persecute you. Remember, who writes the book of Romans? Yeah, the Apostle Paul. Is there a guy in the New Testament who we have more stories about him being persecuted than Paul? No, right? We read the whole book of Acts, and you can read story after story of Paul being persecuted. Paul being uh, verbally persecuted. Paul being uh, economically persecuted. Paul being physically beaten. And so Paul has a right to say, has a right, he's earned the right to teach us a a thing or two about persecution. And his response, his teaching on persecution is, bless those who persecute you. And pray for those who, um, Jesus said, pray for those who persecute you, right? Um, David, so David and Paul are connected in this sense, right? David was a person who experienced opposition, because of what God had chosen to do. He didn't raise his hand and volunteer. He didn't run for president, right? God just showed up one day and said, you're going to be king. And he obediently followed God's plan for his life. And what did that mean for David? Well, at first it meant a lot of good things, right? It meant his name was in the paper. Everybody knew who David was because he slayed Goliath. But very quickly it turned bad for David. And so we've been reading the story about how David is on the run from King Saul, how David has been... uh, verbally persecuted, how he's been economically persecuted. He's on the run. He doesn't have a place to lay his head. He doesn't have a place to have enough food in his pantry, right? And he's been attacked. So Paul and David are linked in that. What's fascinating is that line, if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he is thirsty, give him something to drink, is actually a quote that Paul is giving from Proverbs. Proverbs was likely written by who? King Solomon who was David's son. So I I, I can't help but wonder if King uh, King Solomon hadn't heard from his dad, right, in some format, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And then Solomon writes that down, some version of that, some wisdom his daddy gave him, right? And then later, Paul, the one who's also persecuted, uses it as an example, right? He quotes it in Romans. And so we're reading in this story how David learned this lesson, right? David learned this lesson over a long period of time in his life and in his, in his, in his time going to be king, before he became king officially. And so what we're going to learn this morning is how people with Christ's heart pursue reconciliation and not revenge. And then the phrase that I forgot to tack on the end of this, this, this verse, or this, uh, this key principle, not a verse, is, and they teach others to do the same. So people with Christ's heart pursue recon- reconciliation. They, they try and make amends. They try and live at peace with everybody rather than pursuing revenge. And not only that, they also teach others to do the same. So David, it seems, taught his, taught his little boy Solomon about this because he knew Solomon was going to be king and he knew that he needed to learn this lesson. 
So he writes it down in Proverbs, and it's quoted by Paul. It, he also taught, we're going to see in the story, he teaches a young man named Abishai. He's going to teach a, 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 an enemy named Abner about it as well. Ultimately, he's going to teach King Saul as well. The same lesson about reconciliation over revenge. Who ultimately is the greatest example, right? Of pursuing reconciliation and not revenge. Jesus hanging on the cross looks at those who were jeering, those who were those who were yelling at him, those who were there to, who showed up to watch his death as entertainment. And he says, forgive them, Father, they don't know what they do. He pursued reconciliation and not revenge. And so David is like his, uh, Jesus is like David, David is like Jesus in, in that, right? G- David is the is the little foretaste. He's a little appetizer for what's coming in Jesus. Now we know David doesn't always get it right, and we're going to talk a little bit of that, that, about that too. But so let's look at the let's look at the the verses. Let's look at uh, chapter twenty six, pick it up in verse one. Um, it says that Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, "Is not David hiding himself in on the hill of Hakaliah, which is on the east of Jeshimon?" So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. Saul encamped on the hill of Hakilah, which is, on the, uh, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. And when he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. And then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner, the son of Ner. What an unfortunate name. And, and the commander of the army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. Hi, I'm Abner, son of Ner. I'm Abner, Ner, right? So, okay, th- these first... Five verses. Do they sound familiar to anybody? Some of you are going to think, no, not really. But if you've been paying attention to the series and the plot of this whole section, if you look back at, I believe it's uh, the beginning of chapter 24, you're going to read a very similar setup. The Ziphites come out to and they inform on David, and they tell Saul, hey, we heard tell our shepherds came back and told us they saw David in his camp. They're down here in the wilderness. Now, here's the thing. Last week, we read a story about how David had uh, gone and uh, demanded food from somebody, and then it almost turned into a war, right? You remember the story? And he ends up getting a wife out of it. It's a really weird story, but how Abigail became David's wife. One of the things we're supposed to pick up on as we read through the story, is that David's household is growing. So whereas before, David could hide in the back of a cave with a couple of his merry men, and, so, and he could you know, have that run-in with Saul in the cave we read about, he can't do that anymore. He's got a bunch of wives and kids with him. Um, you know, it's, so it's like, it's like the, the lockstamp fours at Disney World, right? You're not going to hide them. They're just there. Oh, there they go, right? And except for it's like 50 locked in for families at Disney World. And they're all in matching t-shirts, right? It's like, there's David's crew. 
He's getting hard, it's getting harder and harder for him to hide from Saul. The stakes are getting higher and higher for David, right? Because now it's not just him. Now it's not just his neck. Now it's not just him and a couple of assassins he's taken with him. It's women and children, too. So David goes on the offensive a little bit in this chapter, and that's partly why, because things are changing for Saul because of the blessing that God's put on David's life. He's growing a household out of this, this man, David. So why the repetition, right? A lot of scholars actually use the repetition in the Bible to say this is why we can, this is why we can know or why we should doubt that the Bible is historically true because stories don't get repeated like this in real life. And that's an interesting perspective. I would disagree with them. When I look back on my life, I see a lot of rep- repeated stories, right? I see a lot of times where the same kinds of things happen to me time and time again. And if I were to write them down, it would be like, man, this guy keeps doing the same thing, making the same mistakes. Why, wouldn't he, why hasn't he learned yet, right? And that's sort of what happens in the plot for David. There's a repetition here. Saul comes with 3,000 men. He comes to seek David in the wilderness. It's the same plot. It's just two chapters ago. And so here's the thing. We, if we look... if we, we know that practice makes perfect, right? That's the, that's the saying, right? That uh, repetition is how we grow in anything in life. In elementary school, that's how we learned, you know, our multiplication tables. In, it, it, in, in football, it's how we learned how to, you know, play the position that we were assigned, or basketball, right? In, in our workplace, it was, it was years of repetition, right, that teach us how to be good at what we do. So why do we expect things to be any different in our faith, right? And God uses repetitions the same way we use reps in a, in a gymnasium or, or uh, experience in a, in a workplace to train us. And, and so um, we've got to remember that God disciplines or reproves the, one that, the ones that he loves. And so for God to put you through a, a story that feels repetitious, for da- God to put David through a story that feels like, man, this, is, uh, this keeps happening to David. Why, does God not love David? No, it's actually evidence of God's love for David. It's, got, it's evidence of God's love for us when we find ourselves, man, I'm still stuck with this neighbor, Right? I can't believe my, my son or my daughter hasn't learned this lesson yet, and we're stuck in that repetition. Maybe God's doing something, and we're so, we're so easy, we're so quick, right, to ask God to take us out of the trials, to take us out of the testing, when God's actually trying to build in us a faith through that. So we see the repetition. In verse 6, we see that where it shifts. Something different happens than what we saw in the story in 24. In 24, the, the David is hiding, and Saul comes out with his 3,000 chosen warriors, his, his marines and his seals and his, his best men, and they, they stumble upon David. They don't really stumble upon David. David stumbles upon Saul in the cave, right? This time, it's, it's David who finds Saul. And it says in verse 6, we already read that, about how David had sort of gotten reconnaissance and figured out where Saul was. In verse 6, we see the, uh, the continuation of the story. It says, Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite, and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zariah, Who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. 
So David and Abishai went to the army by night. And there Saul lay sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one strike of the spear. I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him. Or his day will come to die. Or he will go down into the battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. No one saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Now this is, again, a repetitive story. Because there's some things that are similar about this story from the one in 24 in the cave where Saul is relieving himself and David has an opportunity to kill Saul and he doesn't take it. And so the same thing happens again just in different, with slightly different plot items, right? Instead of going to the bathroom, he's sleeping, which both of those are, you know, very vulnerable positions to be in. Um, in both stories, there is a, a somebody in David's ear who says, hey, this is your chance. This guy who's been trying to kill you for the last almost decade of your life right here is your chance. And no one's even going to know it was you. Right? And both times David makes the same decision. This Abishai guy was, um, and this is something you can write in your Bible so that the next time you come to this passage, you remember this little detail because it's important. David, uh, Abishai was David's nephew. Z- uh, Zerui, Zariah, or Zer- however you want to say that particular Hebrew first name, is, is actually David's sister. So he's described as uh, by his mother in the story, right? So you're supposed to, but you're supposed to know David has a sister named Zariah. Zariah had a, had a son named Joab and a son named Abishai. And so these are David's nephews. Now, they're, so they're younger men, right? Younger than David, but they're, they're obviously able soldiers. We see like uh, Abishai, he is given this opportunity to go down on this super risky mission, right? David says, I'm going to go down into the camp. And it's funny because the story never tells us does David know that the, they're fallen asleep and that God is keeping them asleep? Because remember, that's what it said, that they're asleep. But it's not any kind of sleep. There's a supernatural miracle thing happening here where they're, in, under, like, they're basically under uh, uh, like comatose, <laughs> like asleep from God. I pray that I can sleep like that tonight, right? So, so asleep from God that, where nothing can wake me up, and, and that's where they're at. But it never says that David knows that. It never says that God told David to go down and do that. So we're left to ask that question, right? Is this a God mission or is this a David mission? Is this something God told David he was going to do? Or is David operating on faith? We don't know. But Abishai is, is like the volunteer. You notice that, right? 
He comes up to two of his chosen guys and he says, okay, who's going with me? You, which of you two is coming with me? And Abishai raises his hand. Um, Abishai, you've got to understand, is a guy who was a willing to take risks and, uh, and was a really bold individual. For somebody to be attached to the house of David at this point, it would be, uh, it's hard to kind of come up with a, uh, an example of like an equivalent in our modern world. But like, just think about somebody who t- took their life savings out and invested it in a really risky startup, right? Like, so, and, and not only did their life savings, but also their life was attached to that. Imagine that, right? We don't do investing that way anymore. But this is effectively what Abishai had done. He knew his, brother, you know, his uncle David was potentially going to be king. And so he joins his army. But in doing so, what is he, what is he doing in, in connection to the current government? He's basically committed treason. Not basically, he has committed treason, right? And so he has staked everything he has on David becoming king someday. If David becomes king, he stands to become a very rich and very powerful man. If David doesn't become king, he stands to be a very dead man. And so he is highly motivated to see Saul six feet under. And so, so this all is really important when we get to the scene, right? Where David and Saul have snuck into the camp. And there they are. And there lies Saul. With a loaded gun right next to him, right? I mean, that's our modern equivalent, right? And Ab, what does Abishai say? He says, this is our chance, right? It's interesting the way he talks about it. He's, he doesn't tell David to do it. He already knows David doesn't have the heart to do it. He gives David an offer. He says, I, listen, listen, Dave, I know, I know he's, your, he's like your second dad, and you love him even though he's your enemy. And I know that you don't have a heart to do this, but if you just look this way, like, I can take care of this in, a, in like a moment. And nobody will ever know, and you can blame me, you know. And he gives him the out. And David doesn't budge, does he? He has the opportunity. He sees here a teaching opportunity to train up somebody in the next generation about something. And he says, um, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? The way the dialogue is written here actually indicates that Abishai was not initially convinced to listen to David. Notice how it says... um, Pastor Ryan, can you pull the passage up one more time? This is a funny thing the Old Testament does. You can watch out for this when you're reading these stories. It's actually a, an, interesting, an interesting way the story often gets, te- gets told in, in the dialogue. It says, don't destroy him, for who can put, up, put his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And that's the end of the statement. And then it says again, and David said. Usually in dialogue, what happens after one person speaks? The other person says something, right? And so we're supposed to understand that there's like a pause here. And there's silence from Abner. Or, I'm sorry, Abishai. And what I think is happening is Abishai is staring at Saul. And he's got a little, he's got a little like, drool rolling down his chops, right? Like, he's still thinking about all the money. He's still thinking about how much easier it would be 
if he were to just fudge the numbers a little bit, right, and do things his way instead of God's way, man, it would just be so much simpler if, and then it's like David keeps talking, right? He says again, and David said, as the Lord lives, and what does, what does David do? Does David say, well, don't worry, I'll get him next time? No, he says, the Lord he appeals to the promises of God. He says, we have a promise from God that I'm going to be king. So whether God strikes him down or whether the Philistines strike him down or whether he just dies in his sleep, he could die in his sleep right now. Right? God could, God could do whatever he wants. The Lord, we, we read this the last time I was with you guys, right? The Lord gives life, the Lord kills. It, our time is numbered. Our days are numbered by God. He's, and so David trusts that. And he says, this isn't our battle to fight. Remember, our key verse for the whole series, 1 Samuel chapter 17, that the, 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 is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all into your hands. That's what David said right before he killed Goliath. And so he teaches Abishai here. He says, just because you can do it, just because it seems like a good idea, just because it would be easier doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. We've got to dismiss that. And so what's fascinating is David takes the chance to pour this faith out, to pour this teaching out onto a young man who, by the way, if you read the rest of the story, learned his lesson. His brother Joab did not. His brother Joab and, and the follow-up to the story of uh, the death of Saul kills Abner, who is right there that night. Kills Abner in, in, in a revenge plot of all things. And so, but by teaching, um, teaching Abishai this lesson, David saves Abishai the grief, right, of walking in opposition to God's will later in his life. So my question is, are you pouring out the faith and the lessons that God is giving you into somebody else? Because David shows us an example of that, not just through Abishai, but through how he taught his, his little boy Solomon, right, that he, he gave these lessons away. They're not just for us to have. They're for us to give away. The next lesson, the next person that gets taught is Abner. Look at verse 13. It says, David went over to the other side of the, and he stood far off on the top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, will you not answer Abner? Then Abner answered, who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, are you not a man? Who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord, the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king, your lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not kept watch over your lord, the lord's anointed. And now we see, and now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that is at his hand. Remember, they had, they had taken the two items as proof of what had happened to say, hey, we were there. And it's kind of a spooky moment, right? Right? Somebody just imagine that thing that like is hidden, that thing you keep close to your bed because you want it, you know, it's like your like your water bottle, right? It's actually funny, it's a it's a jug of water. A lot of us we keep water right next to our bed, right? And so you just imagine you wake up and like that's gone. What does that mean? Somebody was right there, right? You had no idea. Spooky. And so here, Jesus, or, uh, uh, David addresses Abner. 
and it's a really funny way of addressing him. He kind of mocks him a little bit, doesn't he? Actually, not a little bit, a lot. He says, are you, even, are you a man? It's like a one, one phrase he calls him, he, he doubts his manhood. And then the next phrase he says, you're like the best fighter in the whole kingdom. So it's like he's playing with them a little bit, isn't he? Um, Abner is, the fact that, Saul, uh, uh, that David addresses Abner and the army first is actually probably a sign of respect to Saul. He doesn't yell at Saul in front of everybody and say, hey, Saul, we got you. What he does is he picks on the guy next to David, or the guy next to Saul. There's too many names in the story. He picks on the guy next to Saul, Abner. He says, Abner, this is all your bad. This is your fault. And this is the exact accusation of David against Abner. Basically, you failed to protect the king, and you deserve to die. We've got to understand that in their situation, camping in the open field as a military unit, there would have been a sentry, there would have been somebody appointed to stay up and keep watch. So the fact that they're all asleep is really unusual. So he's like, this is a bad look. It looks bad for you, Abner. If, if Saul would have died, it would have been your life. You'd have paid for it with your life because that's your job. And so here's the thing. There's more than just Saul was protected by David that night. There's more than one life did David spare. He could have taken out the whole group of 3,000 guys. They were all comatose, knocked out. And, and he had the chance, and he had a spear to do it with, right? It was all there. But Abner's life was spared too. See, we live in a world that not only accepts revenge and vengeance, we expect it, and we celebrate it. From like the cancel culture phenomenon to like how politics works in our country, in the world, really, it's not just our country. Even how we talk about other Christians that have different convictions or belong to different congregations, different groups. We have this eye-for-an-eye attitude. And one way we see this play out is what we call guilt by association, right? Had Abner really done anything, did Abner have a thing against David? No. Abner is just attached to Saul, right? And so therefore is guilt, there's, there's, that's the idea of guilt by association. You, you're my enemy because you're friends with my enemy. And this is, we see this happen in family stuff all the time, right? This happens in divorces, right? Where kids become pawns in a, in a political game between two parents, right? And it's like, you said that to her, or she said that to you, and then we point fingers and we say, well, you're, you're, you're uh, uh, my enemy because you're friends with them. Right? Because you said that to them. Um, we see it happen in, um, in politics all the time, right? So a candidate comes out and they go on a talk show from one side of the political aisle and they get, and so therefore they get labeled, right? They're friends with so and so, they voted on this bill or this way, and so now they're associated with that side, and we don't like that side, so they're bad too, right? It doesn't matter if you're Democrat or Republican, we bo both sides do it. What we see here is that David makes a strong statement. He teaches Abner with his words, with, but not, not necessarily with his words. He's mocking him with his words, but with his actions, he's, he taught a different lesson. By not killing Abner, he proved that he wouldn't be the kind of king 
that operates under the status quo of killing every former ally of Saul when Saul died. That's how it used to work in the old days. Now, we, now they just lose their job in the new government, right? But back then they would be killed. And so what he's doing here is he's saying, I'm going to uphold my promise to Saul. I'm not going to cut off the household of Saul when Saul dies, even though Saul broke his promise to stop pursuing David. And so what we have to understand is that we need to, we need to see <laughs> the, the ways in our culture that promote revenge, right? I don't, have, I don't have to love that person because they're connected to that person that hurt me. I don't have to see that person as, uh, as part of, uh, as, a, as, a, as a son or a daughter of God because they belong to this, pol- this political group, right? He says, no, actually, we're to see everybody, even enemies, as people that we're to pray for and bless. So he teaches that to Abner. The last one is that he teaches to Saul in verse 17. He says, it says, Saul recognized David's voice and said, is this your voice, my son David? And David says, it is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, why does my lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now, therefore, let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before God, for they have driven me out this day, that I have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. Now, therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out against a single flea, like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains." What we see here is that David's motivation for this covert sleep attack, not really a non-attack, but this whole mission, it was, it was spiritually driven, not politically driven. He says, my, my kids, my wives, everybody attached to me is suffering because of your actions, Saul, and so I'm coming to find reconciliation. I'm coming to try and make peace. And so he confronts Saul, but he did it in a subtle way. He slowly confronts him. But what does he say? Does he say, Saul, you're a sinner? Saul, you've messed up? Saul, you're demon-possessed and you need to quit? Does he say any of that? No, what he, what he does is he slowly says, listen, are you, are, did somebody tell me, did somebody tell you to do this? Or, or, or did God tell you to do this? David actually says, if, it's, if God sent you against me, I'll lay down my life. If, if, if I'm supposed to die because of something I did before God, I'll, I'll, I'll be an offering, he says. He says, kill me now. He submits before God, right? He says, but if it's men, let them be cursed. <laughs> but what is, what, is he, what is he doing? He's honoring Saul, right? And giving him the out. And he's, he's not coming at him with a... With a, with a pointer finger in his face. Have you ever had an argument with somebody and it escalated that way and they, and they thought they were trying to make things right but they just only escalated things? With how they confronted you. And every step of the way, David goes out of his way to honor Saul. Has Saul done anything to earn David's respect? Has Saul done anything to earn David's love? No. He has been nothing but abusive, literally abusive to David. But every step of the way, David doesn't curse, he blesses. 
He doesn't assume motivations, right? He actually comes and he asks Saul, what is your motive? And we're so quick to do that, right? To assume we know. We know, I know why they said that. It's because they're trying to undermine me. I know that why they did that, because they're trying to fill in the blank, right? We see it at work. We see it in marriages when we allow contempt to build up between us and a spouse. We read malicious intent into everything they say and they do, right? David doesn't do that. David knew that Saul wanted him dead, but he didn't know why. And so he comes with these options, and he never accuses. He's pursuing peace. And what ends up happening, look at verse 21. Verse 21 says, um, Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no longer do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly, and I have made a great mistake. Wow. So what's the result of David's coming into Saul, trying to reconcile with Saul? A miracle happens, right? Saul actually confesses. Saul actually owns up to David didn't have to accuse him. David didn't have to say any of that. The the heaping coals on his head, (laughs) the burning coals on his head, have finally broken through, and he's finally convicted, and he finally just says it. I've sinned. Such a powerful moment, right? And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. And may he deliver me out of all tribulation. And then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David, for you will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. Saul actually offers David a place back in back in the palace, it seems. He's saying, come back. David doesn't take him up on the offer. And it's not the end of the battle between these two. But what changes here is is that David preaches to Saul. David teaches Saul. And he gives him one last chance to hear something really important, which is, The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. The reward for David was not that he got his dad back, because they never really were able to restore a relationship. The reward for David was not he got to be right. The reward that he got that day was God looking at David and saying, well done. Right? The reward that we get when we pursue reconciliation rather than revenge is closeness to our maker, right? Because that's the way that he pursued relationship with us. So the reward is not... Um, we, we read all these things, and I, and, and, and I would challenge you to be thinking about the person in your life, right? Who is that Saul? Who's that enemy that perhaps God has put in your life as a test, right? And as a trial to see what, what, how will you respond Will you respond the way the world responds with revenge? Or will you respond the way that Jesus responded with reconciliation? With love?
And in so doing, do we understand that the, what we're doing is not, hey, this is all going to make things better in life and all the people who ever hurt us and who abuse us will now become our best friends. That's not how it worked out for David. But that the reward that we get is treasure in heaven, right? And that the ultimate treasure is relationship with God. So would you pray with me? God, we know that this is a story that you went to great lengths to tell and to preserve because you have a passion to see people restored to you and to be restored to one another. And so, God, I pray that you'd help us to think about who the enemy in our life is. And sometimes we don't like to use that word. But who is that person who's hurt us? Who is that person who we go out of our way to avoid because it's an awkward conversation? Who's that Who's that uh, loved one that we're estranged from? Lord, would you put your love in our hearts for that person? And we know that it's messy and it's not simple and it's not as simple uh, as a conversation happens and it's fixed. Lord, but that you send us on a journey of reconciliation that might take years. And Lord, would you start that work in us this morning? We know that it's only by your spirit that we can pursue reconciliation, that we can... um, Stop assuming motives that we can bless instead of cursing when we're persecuted. But Lord, we desire to be those people this morning. And so would you do that work in our hearts? In Jesus' name.